What is up, folks? Welcome to the Emulsion Podcast. My name is Justin Kana. Today, we talk the art of... No, we don't talk the art of the dinner party. We're going to talk about Noma giving away all of their old stuff, women from taste in cooking ruining quote-unquote food trends, Michelin in 2018 for New York City, and what the hell is fast fine dining? Welcome back to the show, folks. My name is Justin Kana. This is episode 38 of The Emulsion. We are live on YouTube right now, and if you're awesome awesome enough to be subscribed and have notifications turned on, that's that little bell uh, on my channel, that is when you will start to join the stellar live stream of ours. This is where you get to be part of the conversation. I'm going to make sure that all of that is open and ready for you folks to kind of join in. I can see your comments and... Yeah, if at any point you decide that you're interested in kind of giving your thoughts, having a question about something that I talk about, that is the place to get those questions in. And if you're new here, yes, a lot of my videos on YouTube are all about what I'm doing or what I've done in the past. This show is all about what I'm paying attention to, what everyone else is doing in the chef-slash-restaurant-slash-fine-dining sphere. Uh... I also go ahead and take these stories and ch chop them up and upload my favorites, my personal favorites, to Anchor, a platform that I've been personally playing around with, and uploading several times for, per week. So if you're, you know, into this intro and you're like, I don't have 20 plus minutes, uh, you know, those are great five-minute, easily digestible bites of this show while you either commute or on your workout or while you're changing, getting ready for work. Five minutes is really not that much time. So right off the bat, uh, let's get into today's uh, stories. But first, the beverage, cold brew. It is, I shouldn't be having this. This is such a bad idea. I'm really not going to sleep well tonight, but I just got back um, from, again, that little second shift. So I switched it, though. This is a Colombian um, coffee. This is no longer a Hawaiian coffee, kind of giving giving a little bit of a switch switch up. I'm not sure if I like it. It's a little bit too darkly roasted for me. I think I prefer the Ethiopian. The Hawaiian was all right. Um, if you have any coffee suggestions that I should try as my beverage choices change here on the show, I'd be really, really open to getting your guys' recommendations on, on your favorite coffees. So let's start off with today's stories. A funny story that I actually wanted to cover uh, right off the bat is the team at Noma had a pretty profitable week this past week while being closed as a, as a restaurant per se. They supposedly sold upwards of $600,000 worth of stuff that adorned their old space. That's right, everything from tables and chairs to napkins and aprons went to some pretty staggering prices. A, a, a table sold for $16,250. An apron sold for $625. I am super pissed that I didn't keep mine from when I staged there. Those those brown aprons that they, they have, I know they switched to the gray ones when they were in Mexico, but uh, I literally had it in my hands and I was thinking about putting it in my locker and taking it back when I staged there, but I didn't do it. I could I could have flipped it now for 600 bucks. It's so crazy. And they even sold a stuffed puffin for $3,250. The idea here is, of course, to help fund Noma 2.0. However, it's also a super, super interesting move to see them start from, from scratch, from nothing, and start everything new. A lot of these things that they're selling, whether it be the steak knives or the fur on the chairs, this is all very reminiscent of that original space that so many of us knew or at least have seen photos of. And to kind of take those very... Um, 
tangible tactile elements, the, the, the elements that the guest touches, and transport them to the Noma 2.0 would definitely carry that with it, right? I think that if you put those, if you put the same inanimate objects in a new space, it would kind of similarly look like the old one. And they don't want that. They want to start from zero and build it into its own. It, they want it to have an identity. Um, I think this is a fantastic example of a restaurant doing things in a very 2017 way, uh, still making headlines, even though they're closed by doing these kinds of auctions, as well as catering to their fans, making sure that those true fans that they do have uh, can support them uh, in their every single move. And to me, that is 100% the dream. If there's anything that you guys see, uh, if you go ahead and check out those uh, the the auction pieces that they that they posted, and there's something that you would have you would have got, go ahead and leave those in the comments. I'd be interested to see what you guys are are creeping on. Next up is a story from a friend of mine. Well, she didn't directly submit it to the show, but she she used to be my roommate, and she shared it on her newsfeed, and I I thought it fit for the show, so I'm going to cover it. It's from a publication called Taste Cooking. That is the first time I've ever actually read something from them, which was interesting. I don't normally come across food publications that I'm not familiar with, but this one was. And they wrote a piece called Women Aren't Ruining Food. And it's a really, really fascinating read. It, start, it starts off talking all about the rise of rosé as a trend, saying, quote, this isn't the first time a pink beverage has been ruined, nor is it the first time a food or beverage has become so popular that it invites an inevitable backlash. This is how capitalism works. Consumers enjoy something, brands notice demand and turn the product into a lifestyle, and consumers dutifully recoil. But instead of being angry at the free market, the ire towards hashtag rosé is directed at the population, widely believed to be responsible for its own downfall, women. It's quote-unquote lady petrol, end quote, according to BBC host Jeremy Clarkson. It's exhausting, according to Eater. It's unsophisticated and it's over, end quote. It may be true that the rise of rosé is a women-driven trend, but a fact that has been led to uh, has led to a lot of unfortunate gendered product names like White Girl Rosé, Babe, Mommy's Time Out, and with the backlash against it underscores a sad but not unexpected assumption when it comes to food trends and all trends. When men enjoy something, they elevate it, but when women enjoy something, they ruin it. Of course, women are ordering salad. We're taught to fear any quote-unquote indulgence bigger than a cupcake. So if you're angry that a trend is ruining food, stop and ask yourself if the problem is women or the endless cycle that judges them at every turn. Rosé, after all, can sometimes just be rosé, end quote. So to me, this piece stood out because I remember having a conversation with an investor in a restaurant uh, that I worked in about a year ago when we were talking about lunch menus, and I very, very distinctly remember him asking... He, he said to me, well, what's the dish that my wife would order? And he had a very, very distinct archetype for that woman. She was high class, dainty, not a messy, beefy burger kind of person, but a light, clean, Instagrammable dish kind of person. And he said to me that that sells. And with that lady, that archetype person, comes either her friend or the kids or even better, her male counterpart, and then you can sell that burger. And I really, really distinctly remember that conversation. And that was the reason why I wanted to cover this, this story. Now, am I going to get up on a soapbox and give some sort of feminist manifesto? No. You all know my thoughts on gender discrimination. It's absolutely zero tolerance. However, there is no denying that there is a large demographic that consumes, at a certain capacity, 
as trends come and go, they kind of cater to that female, that specific female demographic. My girlfriend loves messy barbecue and I love salads. There's absolutely no absolute. And when you attempt to make kind of these umbrella statements, you're only going to hurt people. So let's kind of stay away from those. I just want to mention that specific point about thinking about that female consumer first. And sometimes there's a surprising amount of overlap that adds to other guests that will kind of tag along with them. Next, I kind of wanted to briefly touch on the New York City Michelin Stars for 2018. That dropped literally hours after I posted last week's episode. I posted that on my Instagram story because I was so pissed that I missed that opportunity. So that kind of fell into this week's window. So a couple things, for me at least, stood out about the list for 2018 for New York City. First off, um, New York City has fallen as the king of the three stars in in the U.S. San Francisco now has more three stars than New York City. It's seven in San Francisco versus five now in New York, and New York City hasn't had a new three star since 2011. That was when 11 Madison Park got their three star um, award. John George, a spot that has had three stars for what feels like forever. It's actually te- technically 2006. I looked it up. They've been demoted down to two stars. So John George had three stars, they now have two stars. There is 56 one-star spots in New York City right now, and that was, um, there was a hilariously incorrect prediction attempt by Ryan Sutton of Eater that was horribly wrong on a ton of fronts, and the Eater piece that released the whole list of 2018 NYC Michelin made sure to remind us of all the snubs and quote-unquote overlooked places. I mean, I'm all for a second opinion. I just think that fan favorites and Michelin both have very different views on on restaurants, apparently. It's very, very evident. To me, it's important not to kind of have one guide to rule them all. However, with all the backlash against Michelin lately, did you guys see um, Christian Puglisi's uh, Instagram rant on Relay? That was definitely making the rounds uh, this this past week. It's definitely one that's going to... The whole Michelin situation right now is definitely one that's going to have to do some work with the chef community, as well as the consumer, I think, to keep its brand in a good place. They're, they're not in the, in, the, in the best place. I'd be curious to hear what your guys' uh, take on Michelin's current state is. A lot of chefs giving their stars back, we've covered that on the show before, as well as people kind of questioning their the strength of their brand lately. And so I'd be curious to hear what your guys' Uh, thoughts are. A couple of you guys responded to the last uh, episode where I asked this question that you you do think that Michelin stars is worth something something to work for, but I'd, I'd still be curious to hear as we get more and more information and more chefs that are kind of like not necessarily on the three-star end of the spectrum also now speaking out about the brand Michelin itself. So next up is uh, a story from Bon Appetit. They wrote a piece this week called Fast Fine Dining is the New Restaurant Frontier. So let's dig into that, shall we? The first uh, little subtitle underneath that article heading was with counter service, stunning dining rooms, scalable brands, and tight menus that don't waste time or ingredients, the nerds of San Francisco are trying to optimize something new, the restaurant industry, end quote. So Let's give some examples right off the bat, right, of this new fast fine dining. The article cites restaurants like Corridor, RT Rotisserie, Barzotto, The Kebabery, and Suvla as places that operate on this model. And we're going to, you should remember those restaurants because we're going to dig into it a little bit deeper. But they cite that the last restaurant, uh, Suvla's own, Suvla, hit the, the owner of that restaurant, Charles Bilili's, saying, 
quote, in cities, this is how people want to eat. They want high quality, cool ambiance, and they also want convenience and value, end quote. You can apparently dine well at Suvla for 12 to $15 per person without wine. They also interviewed Evan Rich, who is the owner of Rich Table, and then that RT rotisserie place that I brought up earlier, saying, uh, they have the money to go out to fancy restaurants, but during the week, they want something that tastes great, yet doesn't require a four-course meal, and that they can take home with them if they want. Apparently, takeout and delivery are crucial to the success of RT Rotisserie and Suvla. So it's interesting that they have combined the idea of like a brick and mortar as well as delivery service into the, the, the restaurant concept itself instead of kind of having the delivery part, which is huge in the U.S. If, if uh, anyone's not familiar, I remember it was just taking off in Norway when I was leaving in around January. It was It's a crazy concept because you can essentially scale in a way that was previously never uh, imaginable for restaurants. So going back to Belili's uh, and a quote that I've been kind of preaching since episodes ago and something that's super important for us fine dining folks to hear, he says, quote, if the meal and atmosphere are what draw customers in, it's in the economics of the fast, uh, fast, fine approach that sustain uh, my restaurant. Fine dining as a business model is fundamentally flawed, he argues. There are so many uh, line items when you're operating a high-end restaurant that the higher you go in the spectrum, the less there is at the end of the month, end quote. So going back to the RT rotisserie guys, they say at fast finding at fast fine. I see. I can't even say it. It's like I'm not used to. I'm used to either saying fast food or fine dining. So it's fast fine dining. He says at fast fine places there are no waiters, no hosts, no sommeliers. Instead, there are typically two counter people and a couple of runner slash bussers. And the speed of the process at Suvla is around six minutes from the time you order to when your food arrives, and that means that these chains can serve many more customers than a traditional restaurant. He says, Rich from RT Rotisserie says, we have 49 seats at the restaurant, but we're serving 300 to 350 meals every day. Belilis says, having a menu that hasn't changed much in three years means that fewer choices means less anxiety for the consumer. If you do a few things well, people will apparently reward you. End quote. It's a fascinating model from a city that we just mentioned is 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 kind of killing it in the in the fine dining game. We just mentioned that they have more Michelin stars, three Michelin star places than any other city in the U.S. And it's also a city that I would argue knows the modern consumer better than anyone, right? In that with the with the entire ecosystem of startup culture in San Francisco, I think it's an insanely interesting uh, point to to note that this is happening in San Francisco instead of in New York City. With the exception of New York City that has its own kind of specific archetype of consumer, we kind of covered that in the Danny Meyer restaurant a few weeks ago that serves a very New York City-centric light seasonal menu. I think this is a this is this fast fine model is one that can and already is, I would argue, scaling in metropolitan areas all over the US, right? If you can take that New York City restaurant that was successful and put it in like Austin, but if it's not the way that Austin people eat, it doesn't really work. This San Francisco model where it's like a very clear uh, identity focused menu that is fast and consumer focused, that can scale into other metropolitan areas. What do you guys think about the name itself, the the, the fast fine dining? To me, I, I didn't really draw the dots or connect it at the start, but after kind of reading through the description a little more, I, I totally get it. it. Like if you put it all on paper, it literally is high quality stuff, a limited menu, expertly executed, paired with, you know, inexpensive but thoughtful wine, and 
it's not that different from what a fine dining restaurant is. And it's seriously that classic case of actually listening to the consumer and kind of understanding their needs and habits, not just with their appetites, but with their wallets too. This seems to be the longer lasting profitable cousin, at least to me, of the quote unquote new romanticism restaurants that we covered a few weeks back on the show. The, the, the nerdy one, if you will, that paid attention in school and is actually having a successful career instead of kind of being the starving artist, if that kind of makes sense. Uh, Clearfather, talking about that Michelin story, says, I think Michelin is an outdated and pretentious brand and that they only stick to certain areas. The Pacific Northwest doesn't have any stars just because they don't go up there. And I would certainly agree. However, I think that creates an immense amount of opportunity, right? Like I'm in the Pacific Northwest, I'm trying to do fine dining related stuff up here. And it's great to know that I don't have to have the pressure of, oh, I didn't get a star this year because I'm trying to do something different where I'm doing like this traveling, always changing kind of style of pop-ups. I know that that takes off in San Francisco, but it's great to know that there isn't that kind of pressure because if I weren't to get it, I would lose out to all of the other competition that are operating at that price point of serving interesting food, if that makes sense. Uh, he also says, Claire Father also says that the fast fine dining doesn't really roll off the tongue. And just the fact that I literally couldn't say it a couple of moments ago says that for sure. Uh, Amanda says, we've talked about restaurants needing to try new business models uh, home forward. It may not be a bad idea to open new things like fast fine dining. A hundred percent. It's it's what needs to happen for people to survive. And I'm completely on board with anything that makes uh people be able to cook for more people and have it be profitable. That's just where I'm at with it. I, whether or not, again, comparing it to something like the new romanticism, which was, if you guys didn't catch that story, it was um, the typical dish of like um, very haphazard looking plating, but it's all very kind of like intentional, uh, heavy on the root vegetables and offal and, it's all the stuff that we, we, we know. You, you would know it if you saw it on a menu. However, that was much more focused on what the chef thinks that you guys should be eating. And then this way is much more focusing on what does the consumer like to eat and how can I deliver it to them in a way that is fast for them and convenient for us logistically. So that to me is what the, the whole fast, the fast fine dining is about. I will get to be able to say it by the end of this episode 38, I promise. So last up, and a story I was kind of excited to cover, it is, a, it is coming from a publication in the, in the UK called Big Hospitality, all about the Swedish chef Magnus Nilsson from the famed Favikin, all about some changes he's been implementing at his restaurant and to all to improve his and his staff's quality of life. So here's, a, here's some quick statistics for you. He has tripled the size of his team over the past two years, going from, I think, 12 to 37, he said cutting staff hours from an average of 80 hours a week to 40 to 45 a week. And in that process, he has expanded his dining room 50%, as well as doubling the prices of his menu from 175 euros to 300 euros per person for dinner. Nielsen saying, quote, we realized no one at Favikin should really be indispensable, including myself. I used to feel guilty for not being in the restaurant when the rest of the team often felt guilty if they were too sick or took a day off as someone else had to work twice as hard to make up for their absence. This is not very healthy, but it is the way most restaurants work. Chefs in general tend to overestimate their importance. Do the world really stop if you miss a service in your restaurant? No, end quote. So going a little bit deeper into some hard numbers that have happened after this change, 
and I mentioned these already a little bit. He says, quote, we had to increase the number of our of, of seats from 16 to 24. That, again, is that 50% increase. Uh, that directly translates to revenue if they can manage to, you know, keep every single seat full. And that will pay for the extra staff. Quote, we, we used to close for vacation and creative work, but we quickly saw this was inefficient from a financial standpoint. So that added another 30% increase in our revenue. So they took away that closure period that if, if some of you remember, if you tried to reserve for a certain time period uh, at Favakin, you couldn't do it because it was just, they were closed for like three months out of the year. But that was not enough. We had to increase our pricing from 175 euros to 300 euros which was huge, we needed to go from 1.2 million euros turnover every year to 2.8 million to make these changes and, and retain a 10% net profit, end quote. So that last part was for the number nerds like me who like those kind of figures. And if any of you enjoy those segments, give me a shout. I'm not going to stop covering them if you say that you don't like them. I just want those nerdy lurkers that listen to this show to comment for once and give me an amen on the math segments of this show because I will almost always dive a little bit deeper into the math, uh, uh, at least on one story out of the five or six that I cover on these shows. But as far as how it's changed for him as a chef and his own personal work-life balance, Nielsen saying, I work three nights a week. Uh two days a week, and do other things like speaking at conferences. I spend much more time with my family, which makes me happier, and in turn, makes me a lot better at my job. At 33 years old, I now have a hobby. I garden a lot. When I wake up in the morning, I think about tomato seeds, manure, and my family instead of problems at work. I don't come into the restaurant feeling like I have to be there anymore. I really want to be there. So this is all, again, unique for everyone, but this is definitely my question of the day for all of you. If given the choice, would you stay at the restaurant as much as we all are used to doing, or maybe you still do, or do you prefer this kind of newer, more sustainable model? Do you think that it kind of inhibits creativity or facilitates it? Do you think it has the possibility at places that don't have the fame level that Favakin does? You know, like 300, 300 euros for dinner is a lot, and not every single fine dining restaurant can swing that and pack every single seat every single night. So let me know in those comments down below, wherever you are, or if you're on iTunes, go ahead and shout at me on Twitter. I'm at Justin underscore Kana. I'd love to include your guys' responses in next week's episode. Or even if you're here um, on YouTube right now, go ahead and leave me your comments, because I'd love to give you guys a little bit of a shout out while we're, while we're still rolling. Uh, a little quickie story from you guys. Sebastian asked me to cover this piece, Eater did, all about Jamaican fusion food. It's linked up for all of you to kind of read if that's something that you're interested in. But what stood out to me was the coverage from someone that we covered on the show before, Kwame uh, Onwauchi. I hope I'm saying it right. I'm horrible at these pronunciations. But from the pre previous closed Shaw Bijou, back in the, is, he's back in the news um, from this story that he linked up to me. His new restaurant Kith and Kin in DC is, is pretty interesting. Basically, it's become a melting pot for a ton of different cultures. I can't go as deep as I'd like in this story because I've got super limited experience with Jamaican food myself. I've had it maybe twice in restaurants and I've worked with a guy once who made Jamaican empanadas for staff meal a couple times, but I just don't feel like I can do it justice. However, if it's something that you guys are interested in, again, it's linked up and I think fusion is always going to have its place because there's a very kind of human element to combining cultures, often with a story, and that to me is what sells. So I think fusion is always going to be there. However, um, it goes a little bit deeper and talks all about how Jamaican food can hopefully 
have its place amongst the other bigger players in the kind of international cuisine of the world. And there was one more comment from Sebastian that he wanted me to cover. He says, quote, also, after I saw a cooking show for pastry chefs, uh, pastry chef wannabes, and I got super edgy. I was wondering then, how do chefs get like this when you see a show like that? And does these chefs really make professional chefs look bad? After all, they are getting really good, especially in Australia. Um, their coaches are, you know, Heston Blumenthal and Marco Pierre White and all these people. I don't know if I get pissed off about it. I don't think that it's something... I think media sells and story sells. And this the, the, the kitchen culture sells really well because it's pressure and high-paced and there's an element of creativity to it. And for a lot of people, they don't get that in their normal 9-to-5 life. And so when they can come and see people a little bit under pressure, it's the classic uh, Jerry Springer effect, right? It's kind of like... It's something where uh, people say that if you're depressed, you should watch the Jerry Springer show because you'll see that people's lives are always worse than yours is. And I feel like that's what does it for a lot of people if they feel like they're kind of like under a lot of stress or, you know, under a lot of pressure to watch someone else be in more stress or pressure than you are kind of takes a little bit of that away. And that's, I feel like, why these kind of like competitive cooking shows do really, really well on TV. Um... Do I think that going on a TV show and having Marco Pierre White mentor you will make you a successful chef? I don't think so. I think it can make for some pretty great TV and they can make sure that you kind of like get the right for certain steps forward, but in no capacity is these shows similar to something like Shark Tank where they'll kind of like mentor you through your career or anything like that. That is a good TV show idea for anyone who's interested in coming up with the next big TV show. Shark Tank for chefs, I feel like that could really be something that would take off. And you heard it here first on the Emulsion Podcast, whether or not it exists. I know they do do restaurants and food trucks, at least on Shark Tank sometimes. I've seen it. My, my girlfriend loves that show. She watches it quite a bit. But no, I don't think it makes us professional chefs look bad at all. I think, if anything, it kind of um, creates this aura around us chefs that people love where people meet I mean everybody if, if if you say to someone on the street or someone new that you meet that you're a chef you're gonna get a positive reaction because the media makes us seem so I don't know so fancy and so creative and so I don't know it's a sexy position to say that you have and a lot of that we owe to the media kind of making it seem giving us that aura around what we do whether or not it's as dramatic or pristine as they portray it to be. So I hope that answers your question, Sebastian. Uh, getting into this week's non-industry story is a little bit of a selfish story, but it's a nerdy one. It's been a, There's been a ton of amazing tech that's been announced, and I, I, I want it all. I recently made some upgrades in my own tech life, downsizing, surprisingly, and it's all going into a new video this week. I redid a bunch of my kits on kit.com, but uh, B&O, uh, Bang & Olufsen, has an amazing new pair of wireless uh, headphones. I actually, I use my AirPods like every single day, but they came out with a new pair that's double the price, unfortunately, but the audio quality is supposed to be amazing, um, and it has amazing reviews. I kind of want to swap my AirPods out Um but I also got a new a new backpack. I traded in my old Peak Design bag for a new one to carry all my camera stuff in. And my friend just got the iPhone 10, so I was playing around with that the other day. And the A7R 3 the upgrade from my camera that I shoot all my YouTube videos on, just came out. I'm definitely going to skip that upgrade. But it's all really hard on the wallet, guys. 
and I love new tech, so of course I'm excited. As in, does anybody have any pieces of gear they picked up recently that they're excited about? I think you should leave those in the comments because I want to know what you guys are, are picking up. Um, but I also did update my, like I said, up, I updated all my pages on kit.com. So now I have two tech kits as well as um, I updated the cookbook uh club for professionals. I basically showed all the cookbook videos that we're going to be covering on Patreon that are on my shelf that I want out of here. I shipped off the Momofuku Milk Bar book and I'm about halfway through the Leave Blanc by Anne-Sophie Pique. Um, I really got to double down on those and push those videos out a little bit faster because one book a month isn't really going to cut it if I want to downsize this bookshelf. Um, but go ahead and check those out if you want my recommendations or if you want to see anything that I shoot this show on or any equipment I use. I made a kit for that as well on kit.com. So with that, this has been episode 38 of The Emulsion. Thank you so much for listening. Just a quick little reminder before you take off, if you want to support this or any of the other content I do for as little as $1 a month, that's like less than a pair of socks... I would love for you to check out my page on Patreon. There you get a ton of amazing access, behind the scenes, gear giveaways, industry advice, cookbook reviews, and literally a Ask Me Anything live stream that happens once a month on that platform, as well as getting to vote on new videos that get made. Um, I have two new ones coming out this week. Uh, you get to ask me whatever you want, how I write menus, all my gear. We're, we're, we're literally going to chat through a ton of stuff on, on this next live stream. It was super fun. We butchered a fish on the last uh, live stream. It was super, super fun. Again, for just $1 a month, that's literally $12 a year. I would sincerely appreciate your support. And for everyone listening that's already supporting, I can't thank you guys enough. Um, if you can't swing the Patreon thing right now, but you still want to support what I do, I just sent out my first, and hopefully some of you guys got it, the first uh, email on my new badass, exciting, value-dropping email newsletter. If you want to go ahead and check that out on my website, it's justinkana.com. Otherwise, if you want to support on Patreon, that's patreon.com slash justinkana, and we'll get you all set up. So if you want stories that you have seen over your week covered on next week's show, shoot them to me on Twitter and hashtag the emulsion so I can find them. Go ahead and subscribe on YouTube if you aren't already. Definitely leave a thumbs up on this video or consider leaving a review on iTunes if you listen there. Regardless of where you are, I really, really appreciate your ears. So thank you. Thank you so much. My name's Justin Kana. Have a good one.